Angola in Africa has long been ranked among the most authoritarian and corrupt countries in the world. A textbook case of state capture under the nearly 40-year rule of Jose dos Santos, billions of dollars in oil and other natural resource revenue were siphoned from the country. Due to its historical colonial relationship, Portugal was deeply involved in Angola's kleptocracy, both facilitating it and benefiting from it. Many hoped that Angola would improve its good governance and human rights record in 2017, when Dos Santos stepped down as head of the ruling party and appointed João Lourenço as his successor. The reality on the ground today is more nuanced. We want to discuss the state of kleptocracy in Angola, the continued role of Portugal in facilitating and enabling kleptocracy, and the pernicious attempts to silence the voices working to bring about change in the country. I'm Melissa Ayton. I'm a senior program officer at the National Endowment for Democracy's International Forum for Democratic Studies. And I'm John Glenn, senior director of the International Forum. You're listening to Power 3.0, a podcast that bridges the gap between ideas and practice on global challenges to democracy. We talk with civic activists, experts, and thinkers from around the world about familiar challenges, such as defending against disinformation, or like today, fighting corruption and kleptocracy. We also talk about challenges coming up on the horizon, such as emerging technologies and their implications for democracy. We're joined today by Rafael Marques, who is the founder of the investigative journalist platform Maka Angola. His courageous and tireless work exposing corruption and kleptocracy in Angola has earned him many accolades, but also many enemies. Rafael, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure being here. So, the big news of the day is that Interpol has issued an international arrest warrant for Isabel dos Santos, the daughter of longtime ruler Jose dos Santos. Can you give our listeners a little historical context about the extent of corruption during the Santos regime? And then we want to hear if and how things have changed under João Lourenço. Just to give you an example, by mid-2017, within a year, then-President Dushantos had awarded his daughter, Isabel Dushantos, a state contract worth $20 billion for her private enterprises. It's remarkable. And he had appointed his daughter also to head the National Oil Company, and his son was the head of the Angola Sovereign Fund. So it was all within the family. And today, as we speak, the body of President Duchantos in the mausoleum built for him by President Lorenzo is rotting and the honor guard had to abandon the place. And then the question is, after destroying the people, so many livelihoods, so many billions siphoned away, these individuals were not even able to build a cemetery for themselves. As simple as that, because they thought money would make them immortals. So there is no cemetery for the elite in Angola, except a very small colonial one that used to have Portuguese colonial troops. That's what the elite uses nowadays. And what is also critical to think about is the transition from President Tuchanto's rule to João Lourenço's rule. One is that we're talking about the same ruling party. It's just a succession of presidents. And the same ruling party has been in power since independence for 47 years. So there was a window of opportunity for President Lorenzo to engage in reforms, especially in dismantling the very systems that enabled the kleptocracy, like the lack of an independent judiciary, 
reforming the state institution that would help reduce corruption. For instance, one example, how is it possible that a president that makes $1,200 a month as a salary run a $37 billion budget? So what I say here is that we have inbuilt institutional systems of mass-producing thieves. And so these are the core issues that have not been addressed in the five years President Lorenzo has been at the helm of the country. Rather than dismantling these systems of kleptocracy, he actually transferred the powers of the former oligarchies, especially those of the generals, to the judges. The judiciary in Angola has become the epicenter of corruption, while before it was the presidency. And I'll give an example. Just in housing for judges, the government is spending over $60 million. I have documents of about 54 luxurious apartments bought by the government for the judges at the superior courts, which were used by the chief justice of the Supreme Court to distribute among his relatives and friends and others. So how can we really combat corruption when we have a judiciary that is corrupt to the core? You know, I think for kleptocracy watchers, one of the more frustrating experiences was watching how much Isabel dos Santos was sort of celebrated as a strong, independent businesswoman in Africa. You know, she was listed as... Richest woman in Africa. Yes, but they framed it as she was sort of self-made. You know, she was rich because of her business prowess. There were universities in the U.S. and the U.K. that would invite her to speak about the importance of developing societies in Africa, which is just, you know, such a, a mind meld knowing what she did in Angola. So I was wondering if you could just sort of talk through this element of reputation laundering that's pretty rife in Angolan kleptocracy. You mentioned Forbes. In 2013, I wrote a long investigative piece co-authored with the Forbes editor on Isabel Duchantos. And as a result of that piece, which actually won a prestigious award for Forbes, Isabel Duchantos bought the rights to publish Forbes in the Portuguese-speaking countries. That's the power she had, so that I would not write again for Forbes. She made a deal with Forbes. And here you see how a venerable U.S. business institution after such an expose of how corrupt Isabel Duchantos was, sold the rights for her to use the Forbes brand for her own propaganda, for reputation laundering. And that's how also individuals like myself who are at the forefront of fighting these individuals become sort of a, have an uphill struggle, not only internally, but externally as well, because these individuals have money to pay law firms, lobbyist groups, and anyone they can get. And what do we have? We barely sometimes can make ends meet. Absolutely. So, Rafael, let me pick up on that. You, know, you talk about the law firms, the public relations firms. In the kleptocracy world, these are often talked about as the enablers. In many ways, one of the insights, I think, of some of the work that you've done, that Melissa's helped lead here at the Forum, is that modern-day corruption is a fundamentally transnational, networked phenomenon. They can only do so much inside their country. 
It is really these ties, frankly, in Western democracies often, where there is rule of law, where they seek to hide the money, but then also to exert influence, whether through reputation laundering or more directly for political influence. And in Angola's case, due to its colonial relationship, Portugal is often talked about, and Lisbon. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, but also about where we stand today? Because, indeed, Lisbon has really been called out for this top work before her, and not that long ago. Just recently, the former president of Portuguese Central Bank, Carlos Costa, denounced that the current prime minister of Portugal, Antonio Costa, had told him not to be strict about the business deals of Isabel dos Santos in Portugal and the money passing through or not. And this is, has been exposed in a book. So that said, well, she's the daughter of a friendly president, therefore let her be. So the standards applied on money laundering controls, on banking controls and so forth, were not the same provided to Isabel dos Santos, so she could get away with so much by having the Portuguese political elites protecting her and the business community. And that's why, for instance, I work in Portugal, and I've always denounced Portugal as a laundromat for Angola. And I had serious problems in, in Portugal. I had even legal cases in Portugal. And even instances of harassment because of the power these individuals had. So if we really want to address the issues of kleptocracies in the country, besides looking at questions of institution and state building, we really have to look at the enablers from established democracies, Western democracies. Isabel has Russian citizenship, but it's not in Russia where she goes to hide the money and to do most of her business. It's in the West. Where presumably she can travel on that passport. Yes, because she was born in Russia from a Russian mother. One of the things that I find really useful about the Angola-Portugal case study is it shows both the ways that the democracies themselves can be negatively impacted by partaking in these types of activities. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners who might not be as familiar with Angola about the issue with the bank that almost failed based on its fraud burden of illicit Angolan assets maybe 10, 15 years ago. It's a really good example of why this stuff matters. It's both for the reputations of the democracies to not allow this illicit money to course through its systems, but it's also dangerous for the democracies. One critical aspect of the Portuguese-Angola relationships has to do with the colonial past, that Portugal colonized Angola for 500 years. Most of the members of the Angolan elite have Portuguese citizenship as well, which creates a gray area. And even many Portuguese politicians and citizens also have dual Angolan nationality because they were born in Angola. So it creates a very complex historical relationship between the two countries. Years ago, one bank, Banco Espírito Santo, in Angola, got into very serious problems uh, because of the way it was providing loans, over $4.5 billion in loans to corrupt schemes and individuals. What I found out through my own investigations is that much of that money actually never left Portugal. So the Portuguese bank, the headquarters, would assign the loans to the Angolan bank but then disburse it itself from Portugal 
two individuals carefully chosen that supposedly were doing business in Angola. And one was a consortium between the owner of a construction company, José Guilherme, and the sister of former President Dushantos. And they received more than a billion dollars for buildings. What we don't know is the fraction of that money that was actually used in Angola and where the rest went to. So there were many elaborate schemes. And then, of course, the bank collapsed in Portugal and all the blame was put in Angola. But the fact is, and the Portuguese authorities to this day refuse to acknowledge that it's their own problem, not an Angolan's problem, because much of that money did not leave Portugal. And what the Portuguese do not want to acknowledge is that Banco Espírito Santo used to be one of the most venerable institutions in the country, in Portugal. The head of the bank, Ricardo Espírito Santo, was known as the owner of it all, the man who controlled the political elites and everything. So what is happening now is a great effort within the Portugal judiciary to find an Angolan culprit to justify what actually Portuguese individuals did absolutely wrong in destroying that institution, in fueling corruption in Angola. Because for years I've been denouncing it. The first time I was called for investigation in Portugal was in 2010 for denouncing Banco Espírito Santo. Bank like that, I presume, wasn't only active in Angola, but there must have been many Portuguese who had their assets there, their resources there, that when the bank collapsed, I assume, had implications for Portuguese citizens. Absolutely. Even had a branch here in the United States as well, I think in Florida. It's easier to say what happened while Portugal was benefiting from all that corruption. And another simple example that I gave and I exposed it, Banco Espírito Santo at some point sold a part of its percentage in the Angolan branch for $375 million. And I had the evidence that the generals, the Angolan generals who bought that share and the head of Sonangol, the national oil company, received a loan from the same bank they were buying, which is even under the Angolan legislation is illegal. And I have the slips in which they received the loan in form of cash, which is impossible for a bank to have $375 million available in cash and actually dole it out at a cash dispenser or by a bank teller. And then for the purchase of these very same shares, another Angolan bank controlled also by the National Oil Company provided the same amount of money. I exposed it all. These issues were never investigated. Uh -huh. So what the Portuguese actually have been investigating, the former CEO of the Angolan branch of the bank. But we have many elements here that prove the larger scale of corruption in this bank. And most notoriously, the Bank of Portugal by this time should have released the list of all the individuals who received such loans. And we will see that much of those billion dollars ended up with Portuguese companies and Portuguese interests. So, Rafael, you talked about having been attacked in some ways in Portugal. And one of the tools of kleptocrats from democratic societies are often these lawsuits. They're known as sort of so-called slap lawsuits that are where even if they 
don't expect them to succeed. They create enormous costs on people like yourself, on journalists, in some cases on academics, sometimes around libel law, sometimes around other issues there. You've been sued in Portugal and threatened with lawsuits from some firms based in the UK. So how have these lawsuits from the democracies impacted your ability to do your own work? Let me start with the lawsuits in the UK. What they achieved was that most of my articles in English that had been reprinted or reproduced in English-speaking websites were all cleared. There was a very, very strong effort to clean up because many of my exposés at the time had been translated into English and were published across several platforms, even here in the U.S., uh, one example was All Africa that published all my articles in English and had to delete them all because of the lawsuits. And this was even really just from the threat of the lawsuits, wasn't it? Because these companies also were served with such letters. In my own case, I've been served by one notorious law reputational firm with so many of those letters that at some point I just replied to them. I said, go and take a shower because I will continue to do what is right. If you want to sue me, come to me and send me the ticket so that I can go and answer it in court in the UK. And in terms of Portugal, I had it both ways, both lawsuits that I ended up in one particular case responding in court. The case proceeded to court and I was acquitted. But it's also the financial toll, the emotional right. toll it takes. Right. And sometimes people do not factor that in. For instance, I spent 19 years dealing with lawsuits and harassment and surveillance that was so bad to the extent that one Israeli company and one Israeli businessman called Haim Tlaib, who's still in Angola and does great business with the Angolan government, has a company called Mitrelli, set up a minivan with all these equipment in my neighbor's house oh, no. permanently to spy on me with all sorts of high-tech equipment. So that's how I lived for many years. And when we look, oftentimes people do not understand how emotionally it is traumatizing, the toll it takes on the family, mm -hmm. on personal relations, sure. on friends, and everything. And that's why I really had to take some time off just to decompress, mm. to breathe, to be able to rethink again and say, well, let's go back. But unfortunately, 23 years after I was jailed for calling the president corrupt, just days ago, a young man was arrested for calling our president, Lorenzo, a thief. So we're going back decades ago. And it's ironic someone who's came on a ticket to fight corruption to promote freedom of expression, is arresting people for those very same reasons he's supposed to fight. And it's not disheartening for someone like me because I've rested enough and now I'm ready to take them on again. Thanks so much, Raphael, for this conversation. You know, I've, I've known you for, for many, many years now, and I, I always just get so much out of chatting with you. To sort of close this session out, we always want to hear a little bit more about why you 
are involved in this work. After everything you just described, this sort of emotional torture, the impact on your families, on your friends. I know you've been, you know, in prison several times. You've been physically tortured. You, you know, really have paid pretty horribly for your courageous work. Where do you find that source of hope to keep going? For one thing, when you travel throughout Angola, you see how beautiful the country is and what such wonderful people it has. And they must have an opportunity for a better life. And I want to live in... It's too cold here in Washington, (laughs) for that matter. (laughs) And I want to live in my country. And those who are doing wrong in the country are the ones who should live. Not the ones who want to develop it. Not the ones who love the people. Uh, And I always say, the same way President Ushantos ended up in exile in Spain, where he died... Those who have come after him and are doing wrong will end up in exile as well, and we will remain in the country and at the forefront of pushing for real change and for people to have a decent life and for the country really to be revealed at its full potential. And then I will happily retire at home. And when I tell these stories and what I went through to my grandchildren, probably they will say, oh, Granddad is such a liar, you know. (laughs) That's what will make me happy then to know that people would no longer conceive what we had to go through to make a better country. Raphael, thank you so much. That indeed is, of course, our hope. It's the hope that our grandchildren will live a better life. So thank you, and that's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. There's been a lot of work on kleptocracy we've done here at the Forum, so please check out our companion blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence, and other resources and papers and reports on the NED website at www.ned.org backslash ideas. And join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us at Think Democracy. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. If you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, Please leave us a good review and comments on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our broadcast production team at the International Forum, especially working today with Josie Broadfuhr. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll tune again next time. Raphael, thank you once again. <laughs>